0: Back in March, when COVID first, you know, was becoming a real thing for us, we were like, "Should we be doing this? Like, is this the right time?" And then we saw trends, you know, at-home drinking going up, people innovating around like Zoom happy hours and different ways of socializing virtually. And the truth is, like, even if we're not meeting in real life, people are finding ways to socialize, and our product is actually helping them feel more connected even from afar. So it's been exciting some of the things that we've got to be a part of.
1: Welcome to the Power Done Differently podcast. I'm Cassandra Ray, and if, like me, you've grown a little disappointed and disillusioned with the people in power, you're in the right place. In this podcast, you'll meet powerful, passionate women from around the world who are doing power differently. Joining me this week is Dee Charlemagne. A former ad executive to entrepreneur, Dee is co-founder of Avec, a line of premium, better-for-you mixers made in Brooklyn. Avec was launched in 2020 right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic with a bold vision to blend diversity, sustainability, and health. She and her co-founder want to change not just what people mix in their drinks, but also stand for the people who want to change what and who they mix with. A first-generation American raised in the Bronx, Dee was on track to test out of New York City Public High School at age 13. When her middle school principal noticed that she was more advanced than her classmates and was bored at school, he encouraged her parents to apply for a place at the prestigious Exeter Academy Boarding School. She was accepted, and from there went on to what she calls fancy schools, Harvard University and Columbia Business School. On the fact that only 40 Black female founders have raised more than $1 in venture capital funding in the United States, and Black founders get less than 1% of venture capital dollars, she says she wants to try to beat the odds. If I were a betting woman, my money would be on her. Dee, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here. So you're in New York, I'm in London. Can you just kind of paint a picture for us of what life is like in New York at the moment?
0: Uh, yes, I am sitting in my living room in Harlem, looking outside the window. There is a lot of snow on the ground. Uh, I haven't been inside in two days as a result, but we got about a foot of snow uh, last week, but there is some excitement happening uh, because restaurants are able to open for Valentine's Day. So people are getting excited about Whoa, that and just seeing Really? Uh, yeah, seeing some of our favorite places return. So there's a little bit of sadness and just you know, always doing takeout and not being able to sit. But yeah, we're back at twenty-five percent capacity for Valentine's Day.
1: That's way ahead of us. That's way ahead of us. I read today that we are likely gonna be In some form of lockdown, I don't know if they'll do minor restaurant openings or whatever, but some form of lockdown probably until the summer.
0: Yeah, that's what I hear too. I used to live in London, so I have a lot of friends calling me bored in lockdown.
1: Yeah, it's... Bored is the word. Bored is the word. And a little bit lonely. I mean, I have a family, but I can only imagine what it's like for people to spend months and months now in their house. But anyway, the end is in sight. And I guess the restaurants and bars open too, Uh, Not bars. So restaurants are
0: at 25% capacity, and they actually just approved restaurant workers in in the next rollout of the vaccine. So
1: hoping that,
0: you know, we get with it and people are excited about the vaccine rollout and like sort of seeing this city that never sleeps actually not sleep anymore. So
1: yeah. What does the restaurant opening mean for Avec? We
0: have always been, you know, we started in June. So we have always been in a time where restaurants were uncertain about you know, whether they were open, whether they were closed. Um, so for us, it's always exciting because it means we can, you know, get back out there, get our products in front of, you know, bartenders and mixologists whose taste palates you know, we respect. And the conversation is not about how sad the restaurant industry is and their livelihoods are still saved. I would just love for the tone to be back to one of like creativity and all the goodness that comes with eating, drinking, dining, etc. versus the economic worry, which is very real.
1: Yeah, I've heard you um, say before um, about your belief in the power drinking alcohol together has to connect us.
0: Yes. So, I mean, EVEC's mission is all around drink better. So this notion that, you know, communities that drink together are better connected. And that doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol, but what got, what got me excited to start EVEC was a lot of my background, right? So I'm Jamaican and St. Lucian. And drinking is sort of core to the way my family connected. You know, you lost a tooth. There was a party. There was rum punch. You got an A. There was party. There was rum punch. There was a wedding. There was party. There was rum punch. Like Everything was cause for sort of celebration around drinking. But I think a lot of hard conversations also, you know, serious conversations over a glass of whiskey or a glass of wine, as you think about that, uh, just make people feel better connected. And there's actually a study done in the UK about this. And so we were really excited that there was data to support that. We don't yet have it in the U.S., but would love to repeat it. But this notion just that, you know, people that drink together have honest conversations and a lot of that can Mm. change the trajectory of, you know, all the issues that we're going through right now. And so on top of that, you know, there's some judgment around drinking that's starting to happen, you know, whether you're a drinker or you're not a drinker and like starting to put people in different boxes based on their preference. And we just think people should be able to flex and choose what they want to drink when they want to drink. and they
1: want to drink it with. That makes a lot of sense. I, w- I moved to London when I was... God, how old was I the first time? Like 18 years old, I think. Um, and particularly when I started to work because I was at university when I first came here. So like that doesn't count because <laughs> you're always going to be social and drinking with people at university, obviously. Um, the only difference was we could do it legally here when I moved here. But, um, But I remember when I started to work here... And there was just this real culture of, um particularly on a Friday, stopping work at like 4pm and everybody would go to the pub and have a few drinks. And there was this amazing like leveling of the hierarchy. You know, there I was like 20, just starting out my career. And I was drinking with, you know, what at that time was like super senior to me, the director. And when I moved back to the States, I didn't move back to the States until I was almost 30 27 or 28. I didn't really feel there was that same culture. And it was... It. I don't know if it was because that's how I learned to establish relationships, you know, through these like... I was like this culture of like going to the pub or whatever. But I, I found it a little bit harder to find a way in.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know... I spent two years in London, close to two years working for Vice. And so the Old Blue Last Pub, I have many memories about. And, (laughs) you know, like you said, that leveling of everyone's in it together. You know, everyone's even on the street when it's cold. And there's a bit more of a mingling that happens more naturally when people are doing that versus if you're sitting in an office. And even at a networking event, like calling it a network event makes it weird. And it feels like, you know, pub culture just makes that happen naturally. And obviously Mm -hmm. having a British co-founder, Um, we're well aware of that pub culture and would love for it to come to America. But just thinking about, you know, how do you even make that better, right? Thinking about the health benefits, the diversity of people at the bar, et cetera. But really feeling like this whole connection around drinking is huge.
1: So how did you decide you were going to start a (laughs) Brooklyn-based, healthy mixing company?
0: So... I have been in advertising for about nine years and had gotten into advertising and media generally because I felt like, you know, I'm from the Bronx originally, got to go to fancy schools like Harvard and Columbia for my MBA and just felt like brands weren't really speaking to like this kind of person that was full of contrasts, that wasn't necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, like this wellness type or the urban type and like all these sort of, you know, psychographic demographic personas that people make. And I just wanted to create a world that reflected back the world that I saw. And so thought brands had incredible power in creating culture and got into it that way. However, Mm -hmm. as I sort of went through, you know, advising brands, it became more and more clear to me that if I wanted to do that, it was something I needed to do on my own. I didn't want to be an advisor anymore. I didn't want to see ideas get sort of watered down as they got through or, you know, not have Mm -hmm. the ultimate decision-making power around what I wanted to see. So I went to business school with that intention of building something. And on the first day of business school, I met Alex, my co-founder, who, like I said, grew up in the UK but has, you know, Canadian and um, Australian heritage as well. And he was a food and beverage consultant and basically noticed on a project for you know one of the big bar chains in the UK that everything had changed for the customer. So, like, you know, a young customer was having Oatly instead of dairy milk. They were having, you know, Kind bars instead of Mars bars. You know, sweet green was a thing in the states where salad was actually tasty. And in the pub, people were still mm-hmm. making this compromise between health and taste. And we saw so mm-hmm. much innovation happening elsewhere. The thought was, you know, why not start this in the U.S.? Why not create a product that is interesting, better? And in the, in the U.S., you know, the mixer category is quite sleepy. Uh, I would say Fever Tree has done a great job in the U.K. and has been a great example of you know, what it's like to build a mixer brand. But in the U.S., the mixer category is, you know, seen as unsexy. And I think, you know, making a category sexy, making it come to life around, you know, a topic that I care about, which, you know, is drinking in a lot of ways. Like my friends are like, oh, you got got the job that you've been doing your whole life, which is getting us all together, having a drink, throwing parties, making events. And so it was just sort of a no-brainer as I thought about the intersection of like culture and the kind of like product and commerce that I thought was interesting to bring to the market. I think advertising sort of taught me like, you know, is it a new idea? Is it fresh? Is it so simple that you like have to do it? And I felt like when Alex pitched it to me, that was where my mind was headed. And so, you know, I decided to explore it basically from day one in B-School.
1: What has it been like trying to launch a company that is a lot about socializing with other people in person in the height of lockdown?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's about socializing in person, but I think it's about conversation in general, right? And socializing Mm -hmm. in general, and sort of the emotions that come uh, with drinking culture in general. So back in March when COVID first, you know, was becoming a real thing for us, we were like, should we be doing this? Like, is this the right time? And then we saw trends, you know, at home drinking going up, people innovating around like Zoom happy hours and different ways of socializing virtually. And the truth is, like, even if we're not meeting in real life, people are finding ways to socialize. And our product is actually helping them feel more connected, even from afar. So it's been exciting, some of the things that we've got to be a part of, like, you know, conferences that are sending, you know, our products out to everyone. And so people are having the same experience, literally tasting the same product, whether or not they're drinking it with alcohol or not. It's the same thing. You know, you have the, in jalapeno blood orange. What does it taste like for you? And there's this sense of discovery and joy that comes with it. So- Mm -hmm. That's the positive side. On the downside, obviously, you know, getting more into, you know, restaurants and cultures has been, and culture has been difficult. Uh, Over the summer, we were able to do more outdoors. So we launched um, at the White Horse Tavern in New York, which is uh, one of the oldest pubs in the city with a six feet apart bar um, and got people to come out and have drinks there. Uh, We've been doing a program when it was warm called Tarot Tuesdays, which was all about, you know, changing what you mix with your spirit, where we got, a tarot reader and an astrologer to come in. So we're really trying to think about new and interesting ways to bring experience to life, even if it's, you know, partly online, partly offline. And if you go to our website, we've even tried to make that a little bit of a different experience. You land there and there's some, oh wow, discovery and joy and emotion that comes with that.
1: How has the response been? It's been
0: way better than we thought. I mean, Alex and I really <laughs> launched uh, thinking, like, oh, you know, this will be a test and learn. I remember, you know, we went into the cannery the day after we virtually graduated. And when all those cans were made, we produced 40,000 cans in our first batch. And my friends are like, if you say the words 40,000 one more or the number 40,000 one more, we're not going to be able to like, talk to you anymore. And it was just like, how are we going to sell out 40,000 cans? Which and in our industry is not very many, but for you know, D. Charlemagne in June, launching her first business was huge. And so the reception has been great. Our first day, we had an article in the New York Times. We were in food and wine in January. We're on our third batch of product, have sold out. So have the good problem of like, how do we make our you know drinks faster to meet demand? So it's been really great. And a lot of our growth has been organic and earned. We haven't spent a ton on Facebook or Instagram or any digital tools yet. Obviously, we'll have to get there, but it's been exciting to see who organically picks up the product and wants to talk about it.
1: Mm, Did you have to raise money?
0: We raised a little bit of money, yeah. A small friends and family round. Uh, I would say mainly (laughs) friends, less family. Uh, Business school (laughs) is great great for networking and things like that. And so, yeah, we raised a small friends and family round, around 275 to get here and have been really spending that wisely as we go and are looking to raise our seed round this year.
1: Mm. I've read that while you were at Columbia, you asked every single entrepreneur, how did you pay your rent? <laughs> mm. So how did you pay your rent? Good <laughs> research. <laughs> how do I pay my rent?
0: Um, so, you know, it's money has been a hard topic for me in entrepreneurship. It is a reason that I probably didn't do it sooner Um, I do not come from like generational wealth. My parents didn't pay for business school. I'm 150K in the whole student loans right now. And so for me, you know, entrepreneurship has always been a little bit of a privilege. And I think at business school, I was just trying to figure out how are people like, you know, a lot of people have partner support or parent support or things like that. Honestly, for me, the blessing of COVID has been that student loans have been deferred. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I've been able to live on, you know, a very small income that the company is able to pay. And because I worked in advertising before, I'm able to pick up sort of freelance jobs here and there until we raise funding. So I basically, you know, add an extra work day onto my day to pay my rent. Um, and it gives me huge anxiety, I would say. But to mm. me, I you know, I'm grateful, you know, I'm grateful to Alex in a lot of ways for sort of, you know, pushing me out of that mindset. I think a lot of people who grow up without money or grow up, in certain neighborhoods or races or gender, we can get into all of that. Just have a different Mm. relationship with money where risk is, you know, hard to digest, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really Uh, important framing that you've offered that we don't hear enough, which is actually to be an entrepreneur is a privilege. And I think that's especially true, at least from my perspective, somewhere like the US, where you might also be thinking, how am I going to, you know, how am, am I going to have health insurance if I yeah. if I don't work for an employer? And I know that's gotten a little bit better with Obamacare, but I know it's, you know, it's still definitely a concern. Um, and there's just so little, it feels like there's so little social safety net to to buoy you in that time when it is risky to start something new.
0: Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's very true. I mean, I say that on one side and no. On the other side, right, my uh, boyfriend is from Africa. And so I've got to spend a lot of time in Tanzania in particular, And the entrepreneurship there is is not a privilege, right? It's a necessity. So, Mm. I think I I I think about it differently depending on context. But for me, certainly in America, it feels like it's a huge privilege to be able to sort of walk away and take the risk. um, In a lot of ways, especially when you have, you know, you've gone through all these structures like the Harvards and Columbias of the world, who tell you, you know, you can go into banking and do this. And suddenly, I'm like, okay, no, I can actually start a business and take that risk, like I find that incredibly privileged. And like a lot of that privilege for me at least comes from the education I've had and the networks that's been able to bring to the table.
1: Yeah. So I think I read you talk about what it was like kind of growing up in two different worlds. Um, you mentioned that you're from the Bronx. You don't, you know, I think your your parents uh, were not from America. So I think if I'm right, you're first generation American? Yes. Yeah. Um, what was that first of all, when did you get your first like entrance into what you would consider another world?
0: Um, so when I was twelve, thirteen, uh, I had gone to school basically in the Bronx and Harlem my whole life up until the age of twelve for elementary public school public school? No, so for elementary school I was in a private school, but I would say it was basically mm-hmm. like going to school in the West Indies. So my mom's Jamaican, <laughs> but uh has a British heritage, and my dad, St. Lucian. And, you know, Mm. the 20 kids in my private school class were all of, you know, West Indian background. The rules and the strictness around it uh, were very much West Indian in nature. My entire class, you know, was Black or Hispanic or some sort of minority. And then I went to the Young Women's Leadership School in Harlem, which was uh, started by Ann Tisch and had, like, the support of Oprah, et cetera. You know, back in 96, like, single-sex education was quite controversial, but uh, they started an all girls public school in Harlem. And I went there from seventh to ninth grade. And in ninth grade, because I had had, you know, this sort of private school, different sort of structured education, I was testing out of New York high school early. And my parents were like, what are we going to do? I guess you'll go to, mm-hmm. you know, Hunter, which is a community college in New York until you're like able to, you know, be mature enough to go off to college.
1: Let me stop you on this yeah. one. D. So how old were you when you were testing out of New York? I City 12. public high
0: school through
1: <laughs> 12. 12, okay. Yeah. I was 12. I probably would have tested out by the time I was 14,
0: 15. And so that was, right. you know, what are we going to do? They were thinking a bit uh-huh. more long-term because the school had started, you know, only a couple of years before. They didn't have, you know, all these AP classes and things to sort of keep me challenged and active and not being a bad teenager. So my parents <laughs> were just like, what are we going to do? And that's when my vice principal at the time uh, had gone to Exeter, which is like a very fancy... Uh, boarding school, I guess, similar to Eton for the uh, London slash British crowd. And he was like, have you guys considered boarding school or private school or any of these avenues? And because my parents were, you know, a bit more middle class, I didn't qualify for some of the programs that existed in the city, like Prep for Prep, which sent like inner city youth basically to these fancier, well-known, you know, public, s- private schools and boarding schools. And so we hadn't really considered it because I just didn't qualify and my parents didn't think they could afford it. So uh, I was basically talked into applying to Exeter, Andover and a couple other schools. I personally at 12 was like, I am not doing this. I don't know anything about these worlds. I tried everything in my might to not get in, including like adding typos to my essay before submitting it, trying to bomb. Yeah, (laughs) trying to bomb some of the interviews. And so I got waitlisted listed. Uh, for the most part. And I was like, great, I'm going back to the Young Women's Leadership School in Harlem. My life is normal. And the, I just remember, I think it was the last week of August, basically getting a call from Exeter saying, okay, you're in, school starts in two weeks. And that was sort of the turning point of, you know, feeling like I was sort of leaving the Bronx and entering a whole new world.
1: So you were 13 then when you, yeah. when you went to boarding school? Yep. How did that, how did you adapt to that?
0: Um, so I did it well at first. So I tried again because I didn't want to go to be, I was like, if I am mute, they might send me back. So Exeter is all around this discussion-based learning where, you know, you sit around a table and have discussions versus learn from a textbook, you learn from each other, and the mm-hmm. teacher is sort of the guide. And I was like, if I'm just quiet, they'll send me back. And that lasted <laughs> for, I would say, probably two weeks, max a month, because I talk a lot uh, and have a lot of opinions. So... <laughs> That didn't work. And then I just sort of got into a group. I would say, you know, I attribute like two of my closest friends today are, you know, two girls that were in the dorm the year that I was there. And they were like, we know you're not a mute. We hear you talk to your friends at home, you know, and we're accepting of a lot of, I guess, like the differences that I had. You know, like I showed up, they joke now, but like my friends are like, you showed up to your PSATs in a rock like jumpsuit with braids and like these long nails what has Exeter done to you now? Because now you have polos and all this stuff. So I think there was just (laughs) this like transition of identity that was happening and they sort of made Mm. me comfortable in doing it. And because I hadn't done, you know, prep and any of these other programs, I was sort of excluded from like the Black community in a lot of ways because I wasn't, I hadn't gone through these programs. They didn't really know where I came from. I started in 10th grade um, instead of ninth grade. So it was just an interesting, I think, an interesting transition. Plus, it was in New Hampshire, which is, like, very different from New York, like, Mm. in terms of, you know, speed and pace and just the kind of people that live there. So that, I think, was what sort of shook me out of, you know, the world that I knew.
1: And how did you cope with being away from your home, like your family?
0: Um, I honestly just threw myself into doing a bunch of stuff. Like, Exeter was a six day a week program. So Saturdays, we still had class. So I didn't Mm. really have a lot of time to think about missing home. There are certainly times that I did, uh, but Mm. my parents came up quite often, probably too often. They stayed for a week when they dropped me off, which is unheard of. (laughs) Most parents just like drop kids off, have a little cry session, leave. My parents were there for a full week. So they came up quite often and we spoke every day. That's when it was like, not really cell phone era quite yet. We had, you know, desk phones and things like that, Skype.
1: So
0: yeah, I, I was just busy doing a bunch of stuff, learning a bunch of things that I sort of just got wrapped into that world.
1: I'm so intrigued by this because I feel like we had strangely parallel childhoods. <laughs> like, um, I was, uh, like I went from a private school to a public school in high school in ninth grade was bored out of my goddamn mind, like so bored, but didn't like nobody, nobody cottoned on to that really. Yeah. Um So instead of, instead of getting onto a good track, I got onto like a very bad one. Um And then eventually when my parents were like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <Things> aren't going <laughs> so well here. <laughs> Oopsies. They uh they also sent me to boarding school. Um and I quickly got myself kicked out cuz I was like, no, this this is not <laughs> really? the for me. Uh yeah, I when I was a, I was kind of a very like adventurous anti authoritarian kid, certainly in my, in my teenage years. And then I'd also been straddling these two worlds. Like I didn't grow up in, in the city, but my, my dad, like, was a engineer, worked for ExxonMobil, had a really, you know, really good living. He came from a really working class background, but like he made a really good living. But then my mom was, And my mom's side of the family are, you know, nobody went to college. There's a lot of drug addiction. You know, there's like, I think to say working class is pretty generous of of most of that side of the family. And so I lived in between these two worlds. And at 14, having a little taste of like freedom, that was what I valued most. So I was like, absolutely, I'm not going to go to boarding school where I can, where someone's going to (laughs) look like, watch me, you know. And so I ended up moving with my mom. But then, it wasn't until I was, um, I think it was 10th grade that I had, I, I had read that you had a, a principal that was like, you know, and you just said like, yeah. that it was like, Hey, why don't you consider these schools? And I had a teacher at 10th grade who sat me down and was like, You're really smart and you could be at Columbia of all. like, that's, he yeah. came from New York. I was in Florida at the time. Like I moved from California to Florida and he was like, You could be at Columbia. I think you have that potential, but not unless you get your shit together right now. And I don't know. It was like weird. It was the conversation I needed to have. Um, and then I kind of got my shit together a little bit. Um, and ended up, ended up in Columbia eventually. So, um, but you, I, I had to make a lot more mistakes than you did along the way.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, I would say, yeah, Jama- Jamaican mom, man. Yeah, you the terror that comes with that you don't even i don't even know what the next level up from tiger mom is I don't even know what it would be in Jamaica but yeah you yeah i probably would have gone awry if she she wasn't around so what
1: brought you to London all those years ago
0: um so when i first started my career i did a three-year rotation program with wpp uh, which was mm-hmm. three years three different geographies in advertising and media and obviously london being a Great starting place and like the hotbed of media and advertising. It's natural that most of us go through there. So I spent about a year and a half working for uh, Vice before it was sort of the media company that a big, big media company it was is, is today. I was sort of there mm-hmm. as it was moving from startup to bigger company as they were just getting on TV, and I worked underneath the two MDs there, doing everything from like branded partnerships So when they bought ID Magazine relaunching that website, uh, working with MIA on a music video, which was awesome. Mm. So yeah, I spent about, yeah, I extended my stay in London because I loved it. I also discovered that I was a British citizen in applying for a visa there. My mom was born in Huddersfield and thought she had to give up her passport to get her American passport, which was not true. And so when I applied for a visa, they were like, hello, you are British. So it was also another discovery. That's identity. Yeah.
1: That's incredible. And I'm up until like six months ago, that would have given you access to the entire European Union, which is awesome, but yes. no longer.
0: No longer. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so I read about this incredible class you took while you were at Columbia. I was so jealous that they didn't have it when I was there. Um, where you, what was the title of it? Where you like looked at this divide we're having in America right now.
0: Oh, bridging the
1: American divide.
0: So that has been one of is my favorite classic Columbia, probably one of my favorite classes in life. Um, the whole point of the class is basically, you know, at Columbia Business School, the whole idea is that we're all going to become future business leaders. And so how do you think about running a business in America in a country divided in so many ways, you know, party lines, racial lines, automation versus not, et cetera. We go through all the issues in America and not looking at it necessarily from like a corporate social responsibility standpoint, but just What does it mean to people? How do you have these conversations? Like, what do you need to know about it? And it's a class that you apply for. So everyone in there is like, has strong opinions, wants Mm -hmm. to be there, wants to debate this, wants to, you know, kind of check their ignorance or challenge opinions that they have. So there's just great debate. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the class, pre-COVID times, I guess we took a visit to Youngstown, Ohio, which used to be, you know, pro like prominently known as like the steel, steel town, USA, like steel used to be there. It used to be quite wealthy, et cetera. And then what happens when essentially steel left the town is a lot of the divides that we were seeing. So like racial, economic, et cetera. And it's how, you know, how do you save what they call these ghost towns? I don't like calling it a ghost town, these ghost towns of America and see different perspectives there. So we got to visit also at the time that GM was closing a plant there and got to meet with the union as well as, you know, business leadership around what that was doing and just people in general, how it's affecting families. Like, you know, they closed this plant and offered me a job four hours away from my family. Is, is that fair? Mm-hmm. You know, all that kind of discussion and debate. So it's a pretty amazing class and the two professors that run it, um, one is Todd He's more of like a leadership style organizational change <laughs>
1: I took a class with Todd Jick. Oh, my God. Yeah, and if if that class had been on offer, I definitely would have taken it at the time. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. no, I took a
0: couple of change management classes with him. He is the best. And then, yeah, Bruce Usher, who focuses on, you know, ESG, sustainability, et cetera. So they come at it from different perspectives as well, which makes it interesting. Mm
1: -hmm. And what was the conclusion? How do we heal the divide?
0: To me, the conclusion was, again, conversation to me is everything, right? Like, it's just like, Mm. we need to talk about it raw, honest and what it means, you know, and I, I think it's interesting in America in particular, you can't divorce race from any other divide, right? Like race is sort of like the yeah. umbrella divide and then it trickles into economic divides, automation, real estate, like everything we talked about somehow came back to race and it's the most uncomfortable thing to talk about. So it's just how do we start having conversations and putting structure or framework or putting the right people in a room to talk about how to fix a lot of the things that are have been broken for a very, very long time. Like Yes, future business leaders can fix stuff, but we're fixing a system that has been broken for quite a while.
1: Yeah, I think a lot about this problem because obviously we're feeling it really acutely in America right now, um, and but it's not just in America, right? We're seeing this kind of rise of populism and I don't know, this this kind of strange divide along, you know, the, like class and race and and xenophobia like everywhere at the moment, um, not in every country, but in every part of the world. there is countries that are experiencing this right now. and I don't know I mean I know that some of it is automation. I know that some of it in America is our original sin, but it feels really complex and it feels really overwhelming, and it also feels like if we don't start to come up with some solutions to this, we're like really deeply fucked.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that gives me hope and, you know, I now feel like I'm like old because I'm like millennial being like Gen Z gives me hope. But like the future, <laughs> the future generation, I think just the diversity that they've just lived with, period, like that lived diversity will be incredible, right? Because that's where you have those conversations, right? Like I would say I was probably ignorant to many cultures until I went to Exeter and was sitting around a table. You know, my roommate was from Saudi Arabia. We had a girl from Greenwich, you know, someone from North Carolina, someone from Korea, someone like it was an incredible representation of the world. And so I think just the more people grow up in environments of diversity, the better off we're all gonna be. Like I don't think it's gonna be this quick solve, but it's it's gonna take time to like live and care. And I and I think, you know, Black Lives Matter just showed like getting people emotional about things like having people experience the emotion that like black people have felt <laughs> so viscerally, yeah. you know, without seeing it on TV uh, yeah. has been incredibly powerful, right? People sort of get it. I don't have to explain a lot of the things I used to have to explain in detail yeah. as much now.
1: Yeah. There's, there's that, this is something I learned in business school. It's one of the only things I still remember. Reason leads to conclusion. Emotion leads to action. Yeah. And yeah, we definitely saw that Open Black Lives Matter, but I don't know. I mean, the diversity stuff is so hard because I feel like if you live in a city, you see a lot of that. But if you go to those smaller towns, or I've been really open about talking about this struggle I'm having with my brother at the moment, I and mean, he lives in Southwest Florida, uh, in a small town in Southwest Florida. It's like a town where, I mean, there are a lot of Trump flags, yeah. like flags, you know, not like boards, like flags. Um, And at first it was really perplexing to me in part because my brother is half Mexican. And so like the fact that he went full on MAGA, I was like, I don't get it. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) you know, like he's not only like working class and personally benefited from Obamacare and like, you know, all those things, but also is like, and then I realized it's because he doesn't really identify as Mexican. You know, he just like identifies as like this. He doesn't really even identify as like brown skin, you know, even though he is like definitely got brown skin. He just, I don't know. And and I don't have a way, we have have had really different lives and I just don't have a way in with him. And I don't know how we're going to find a way in because he doesn't have exposure to a lot of different people who've had different ways of life, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think more and more, like especially the digital sort of like fluidity we live in, Uh, now people are being exposed to way more. So my hope is in that. Obviously, Mm. there's going to be, you know, there's chambers in, like, quote-unquote diverse communities, right? Like, I wouldn't say growing up in the Bronx, Mm. I had great exposure to many people, right? So I don't Mm. think, you know, geographically, there's a lot of work to, you know, get people to sort of mix, not to use that word. But I think with social media, just more and more people are, are going to have to be exposed to ideas, right? Like there's, and, you know, social dilemma and all of that, but like more and more the internet is working to try and get people to see different sides, to see different things. And like people are reading more, people are more aware. And I think even as people become more and more polarized, they're also becoming more and more educated, right? So they're able to stand as to why, why they have that opinion. It's not just an opinion because I'm a Republican. I feel this way because I'm a Democrat. I feel this way mm. because I'm a woman. I feel this way. I think people are getting more nuanced in their values and what it means to them personally versus like, just like, this is what the group is thinking. You kind of have to defend your own personal perspectives way more these days.
1: Hi, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I hope we're moving beyond <laughs> the the tribal and starting to consider, yeah, uh, I don't know why we believe what we believe and and the values that drive them. Depends on the day. Some days I'm like super <sighs> optimistic and some days I'm like really, really <laughs> pessimistic. Fair. Maybe you caught me on a good day, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know if this stat is still true, but uh, I believe there have only been 40 Black women who have received over a million in VC investment. Is that right? That was the latest stat. I think there's, there's probably more now, but I hope so. Yeah. So when you think about yourself, I mean, speaking of this kind of like identity and intersectionality and the nuance, do you think of yourself as a Black woman founder, like out to to kind of beat the odds? Uh, I do. Yeah. I mean, I
0: think I struggled to get there in a lot of ways because, you know, mm. I for me, it was like, I don't want to be successful because I'm a Black woman and people are like, you know, quote unquote, giving me handouts. Like, I want to be successful because my product is great. My branding is great. My brain is great, et cetera. I think more mm-hmm. and more I'm just realizing how much um that you know double identity sort of plays into my life. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. I strongly identify as a black female founder. And I've actually um, my last job, like full job before business school, was working for a female founded agency called Joan. So named after Joan Jett, Joan Didian, Joan Arbitrating, Joan of Arc, like all the badass women named Joan. And at the time we were trying to start a media company called Damn Joan, which is sort of like if Vice had a girl cousin that was like, you know, not that into pink and girl bossy and all this sort of millennial pinky stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as part yes, of- we need that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we tried to fundraise at a time where like all the media valuations were crashing. But before that, uh, I was really passionate about actually, you know, interviewing all, at the time, I think it was like 25 women or something had gotten over a million dollars interviewing these women and seeing what their struggle was. And I think I got to have probably- you know, five to six conversations with a lot of the founders to just understand, you know, why it is, what the struggle is, you know, how their identity mm-hmm. is playing into it. And so I do, I do think about that that a lot. I actually wrote my business school essay. The first three bullet points are, you know, stats on Black women and funding side and founder side, you know, on the other side of that is Black female entrepreneurs are growing like crazy. I think it's still, you know, the top people who are becoming entrepreneurs, but on the other side, you have this sort of like funding problem, and so my whole essay was around like do I become a funder or a founder, and you know where where do I sit in this sort of ecosystem?
1: Mm. where do you think you will sit in that ecosystem if we fast forward ten or fifteen years?
0: My hope is that I start as a as a founder, um, and a lot of that was because I just love operations, I love doing things, I love putting things together, so to just be a funder from the start uh, wasn't didn't feel natural to me. And so I hope, you know, I started successful businesses, I'm able to be, you know, that angel check, able to understand businesses that maybe have to be explained more to someone who doesn't look or talk, you know, like a woman or a black woman or my age or whatever. Uh, so I hope to be a mix of both, to be honest.
1: And what do you hope for VEC?
0: Yeah, a lot of people have asked, like, what does success look like for VEC? And for me you know, it, it's a clear image in my head, right? Like I just wanna walk down a street, you know, equally walk down a street in New York, you know, in the Hamptons or Harlem and see people drinking a back, right? Like I don't want to, to be this premium brand that only sits in one world or this like unaccessible anything, right? Like I just wanted to sit in lots of different cultures and to be part of conversations. And that to me is successful, right? Do I see I wouldn't have gotten to beverage if I wanted like huge financial like this is a low margin business like I'm not at a sexy tech company you know my first day's of business school was literally walking around New York City with a cooler to me it's you know <laughs> it's, it's about the importance of this like bigger notion of drink better you know with a great product that is like low sugar low calorie natural made with the right stuff you know we think about sustainability and what that means in terms of progress there you know we were in aluminum bottles but diversity and what that means and like I think Alex and my story being sort of you know inspirational to others like you can have a diverse co-founder and have it work and be great so I just think there's a lot of a lot of my AVEC successes around just like people and the way we sit in the world um, in that way
1: Okay I'd like to switch gears and end on our we call this our Tilly round it's kind of a a quick fire round but actually it's like quick-ish because it can go fast or slow depending on how you want to take it okay What's one lesson you've learned the hard way?
0: Um, where you start matters. So I used to think, you know, I got to go to all these fancy schools. Like if I'm at Columbia with everyone, we are at the same spot. I shouldn't worry about like the system that has come behind me or where I started. Like we're equal, you just work hard and get there. And more and more I realized, you know, like I've run a different race than many people. Yes, I've ended up at the same like end point, but you know, where I started really does matter and changes my perspective. And I think- you know, I'd always just been brought up in sort of like that immigrant mindset of like, we're going to make it, we're going to make it dream big. Don't worry about the system. And I think that has made me, you know, or had made me swing to the other side where I was like, okay, the system doesn't matter. Where you come from doesn't matter. Just like work hard and get to where you're going. Uh, Not that everyone can get there, but just like, you know, try and get some luck and get where you're going. And more and more, you know, history matters to me.
1: Hmm. What does that look like? So that you now now that you know that it matters, is that does it change the way you interact in the world? Does it change the way you interact with other people who you might employ or?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think about I think I just think about privilege differently. Like I would say before, like, you know, there's different like I'm privileged, like I think there's a lot of guilt around sort of leaving the Bronx and going to these fancy schools and like not having a world that all of my family and all the people that I grew up with, understand. And so I think mm. it helped me get rid of some of that guilt in a lot of ways, be able to talk about uh, my experience differently, be proud of, you know, being a Black female founder, right? Not just a founder, but being proud of being Black female founder. And so I think I just have way more pride and get into the nuances, right? Like I don't let a lot, I used to let a lot of like ch- things slide as like jokes and things. And now I'm way more like, okay, that's not okay. And like, here's, mm-hmm. let me let me explain it to you, right? And like way more comfortable sitting in that uncomfortable conversation, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. How have you, I'm going off my Tilly round now, just because I've <laughs> thought of some other questions I want to ask you. Um, how um, How have you found the... I don't know, is that a process, is an effort? I'm, I'm looking for the right verb here, but of relating and connecting to the people you grew up with in the Bronx now having had, you know, these this education at what you call fancy schools like Harvard and Columbia and this other kind of life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I relate, but there there is this notion of like, you come from a whole other world. So I mentor, um, she's now 16, a 16 year old girl who goes to the Bronx Leadership Academy and, I understand her experience in a lot of ways. We're going through the college process in a lot of ways. She was like, I didn't know that you went to Harvard. Like, oh my God, that's like a totally different world. I thought you were from the Bronx, right? So I think I'm just Mm -hmm. able to speak two languages. And it's not necessarily a code switch because I think I'm myself no matter where I go. It's just I'm able to understand two different sides, which I think is a gift in a lot of ways. Like I'm able to expose Mm -hmm. people to new things. Like, you know, I take her to a restaurant and she's like oh my god we're having white people food and it's like no it's not that it let me explain where <laughs> this comes from <laughs> right um yeah. so and i'm able to go to the bronx and like have taken you know my friends that have grown up very far away from that life and made them you know enjoy that experience like let's go get a beef patty down the road you're going to love it let's go to chinese takeout here let's you know it's not just the bronx zoo basically um yeah so i think just having that that like dual, I don't know what you call it, like dual language or like ability to adapt is like very high on my list. Like I even think about dating and it's like the number one thing that (laughs) I would look for, right? Like, are you able to go high and low with me? Like,
1: Mm. yeah, it's a superpower. It's definitely a superpower. What don't women talk enough about?
0: I would say women don't talk enough about still wanting to marry for resources. I would say Mm. I'm probably at that age where people are considering like long-term partnerships. And I'm just surprised how many of my friends educated, you know, great jobs, et cetera, still believe that wealth will come from, you know, their husband or partner or whatever the choice may be or some other source. Like, I don't think women talk enough about just the support that they expect um, in partnership. And I think we should talk more about why that is. And I think there's lots of structural reasons right? Of like, you know, in heterosexual relationships, at least of why men have, you know, more wealth accumulated and why women don't think they can get there. But I've just been having a lot of interesting conversations around like, I guess, financial planning with a partner and what that looks like.
1: Mm. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? I would say
0: opinion-wise, probably just like asking for help. I used to think, and I forget who said it, but it 's stuck in my head forever, which is like if you 're going to withdraw something, you have to be able to give a deposit right so i 've been hesitant to ask mm. for help because i 'm like you know i 'm a small brand like from bigger brands, for example, like i 'm a small brand, what can I do to help them? how can i like and i end you know I ended a call with you know a big sort of like spirit founder, and I was like, if there 's anything I can do to help you, like let me know like i don 't want to <laughs> just take your resources, et etc and she was like girl, like no one's trying to take your resources. like help me later, help someone else in the future. This is not about, you know, a trade in a lot of ways. And so I think my opinion just of like when and how to ask for help has drastically changed and is, is in progress, I would say. It's not totally changed, but um, I used to judge people a lot of like for asking, you know, oh, can I have help with this? Or like networking too hard to try and get something. Um, mm. But now I just understand, like I think I just understand a little bit differently.
1: Mm. There was a study that showed that people actually feel closer to you when they've done you a favor than they do when you've done them a favor.
0: Yeah, that's what, I mean, that's what they say in business school. Like, start with an advice conversation and then move. But like, in my soul, right, it's, I'm like, what am I able to offer? Like, what can I give them? Um, And I think that, again, is like a risk thing. Like, I I never want to be in debt to anyone, right? But you have to understand Mm -hmm. that. Help. Help is given along the way. It's clearly marked by my whole life story. But
1: yeah, nobody gets anywhere in life on their own. Yeah, nobody. What unearned privilege or unfair advantage has been most instrumental to your success so far?
0: Uh, I would say education and network. Like going to Exeter, Harvard, and Columbia. Just I'm always I feel like two to three degrees removed away from someone powerful that i need to talk to um mm. so to me it feels like a huge hugely lucky advantage like i wouldn't say i did anything particular to to earn that it's hugely lucky um and that that to me has got me opened a lot of doors
1: what are you still insecure about I think I listened to one of your other
0: podcasts and I was like, God, what am I super insecure about? I'm like, <laughs> let me ask someone else because I'm super insecure about it. You don't want to look in the mirror and talk about it. So I asked my mom <laughs> and my partner and both of them were like, you're very insecure about being loved, um, which I thought mm. was an interesting answer. I think I'm just, you know, I don't know what it is. And maybe this goes back to the help point, but, you know, I'm just afraid of like fully being vulnerable and fully, you know, letting myself go Totally. In front of people, if mm. I'm honest. Like, I think there's a closeness that people feel with me because I overshare a bunch, but in that oversharing, somehow it's not entirely vulnerable. And so I'm working on just figuring out why that is. So thanks for inviting me on the podcast so I can figure that one out, but I don't have a clear answer of, of, what, of where that comes from. I grew up in a very loving household. Yeah. So I don't have any big abandonment issues, but yeah, being loved, I think I, you know, it does make me make me a little wary and that might go back to like the wedding marriage point. Like, why do I not want this title? I just don't want it to be taken away or, you know, things like that. So I think being loved, you know, romantically, but also just by friends and totally like letting go and accepting that people can love you, even if you're not, not like adding value in a lot of ways. Right. Like I, in my friend group, I'm the one that like plans the trips, plans the parties, gets everyone on schedule, make sure, you know, everyone has a calendar invite. And it's like, when you stop doing that, do people still love you? Yes. Like be okay with that. But I think I'm still working through that in a lot of ways.
1: Hmm. Are you um, a fan of Brene Brown? I am. I am. Yeah. This is like her wheelhouse. I feel yeah, like I this vulnerability stuff. Yeah. But when she talks about it, it seems so simple, but then I don't know about you, but then I'm like, but I don't know how to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how to do it. And I don't know. I heard your words. Yeah, I don't know what the source
0: is. Like, maybe I just need one on one time. Everyone feels like they're like a unicorn when it comes to it. I'm sure it's just, again, like I said, I think the things that you're like insecure about and vulnerable about, it's hard to, like, other people see it so clearly. Um, and you feel yeah. it in your gut. But I think even articulating it, it's kind of hard to explain. Um,
1: yeah. So you're 31 now. If you could go back and tell your twelve year old self anything, what would it be?
0: to relax? <laughs> um, I was a very stressed out kid. Um, I used to cry I cried every day until like third grade uh, because I missed my parents <laughs> every day <laughs> yeah, until one my fourth grade teacher was like, "Call her cry, baby Sue," and she starts crying to all the kids. And then I stopped.
1: Well, there's your, there's your, where's where your insecurities come from, Dee? You were bullied by your teacher for your sensitivity. Like you well, solved it. I love
0: crying now. So I don't know. I still cry um, Crying is like a good meditation for me. But um, yeah, that basically.
1: And if we were having this conversation again when you were 51, what do you think you'd be saying you wanted to tell your 31-year-old self? Be patient.
0: I have, uh, I'm have. i looking at my, I have this like little wheel on my wall and then the center of it is be patient. Um, I think I am very much a doer and try and like do a lot of stuff and get a lot of things done. So I would say be patient as much as pos- possible, which sort of sounds cliche, but in that I mean like, be patient with sort of everything and like, know what you can't do, know that you can't take 2000 actions a day and don't judge yourself for it in a lot of ways. Mm. Like, I think for me, you know, going back to the conversation around privilege, like a lot of what I think, you know, I've been tasked to do as the next generation is to like make and do and make that privilege. I forget who said this, but make privilege productive in a lot Mm. of ways. And so I think just being okay with not, being productive and being patient with yourself around or how much like output you're putting through like I'm not a machine but I have to remind myself that a lot
1: yeah when do you feel you're most powerful probably on a
0: yoga mat to be honest um or or just some sort of like physical activity that I'm doing myself I climbed Kilimanjaro a couple years ago which was amazing and like, that's when I felt wow. like a hero. I mean, I was definitely the weakest link on the whole, on the whole trip. Like, I, you know, I was like, thought we made it to one peak, peak and then it was two hours and I was like not doing well with the altitude. But, you know, I felt so powerful, like fighting through all of that and getting to it. And I think when I'm on the yoga mat, I sort of feel the same way, just of like, I'm with myself in a lot of ways. I feel most powerful when I'm with myself. Um, and then like, I don't know why that is, but obviously because power is sort of derived by influence, but to me, it's just being alone and doing something physical.
1: Do you do yoga every day?
0: I don't. I do it once a week. And when I don't do it, I feel a bit crazy. And I also feel like the pandemic, there was something about going to the yoga studio. So like doing it on Zoom Mm -hmm. is not really working for me. (laughs) On my birthday, uh, I got my yoga instructor to come and do what my friends call church yoga because I'm not very religious, but saturdays from 10 to 11 30 used to be like i i'm going down to do yoga like everyone do not call me then uh and he came and did a session there but you know i I think there's really been that's sort of my saddest part about um covid and being in quarantine it's just not having that space to sort of go and like feel that power if that makes sense
1: yeah it makes makes total sense are you also a peloton user i am uh I think you saw my bike in a Zoom once. Um,
0: that I is think a gift. I did
1: see your bike in a Zoom once. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is, so Peloton is an interesting one because it feels like I should not have the financial status to own it. But my mom uh, was one of like, she started Peloton like way back when, when I was like, who are these virtual friends you're making, mom? This is so weird. <laughs> um, and so she is just a Peloton fanatic, upgraded her bike. And was like, okay, you can have my, you know, scraps, which are not scraps at all. So <laughs> it's been great. Like, I, lo- I love having it here.
1: Do you have a favorite instructor?
0: Um, I have two favorites. Alex Tucson because like, he's just hot. <laughs> 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 that's, that's basically it. And Justin, because she has like a cute puppy, is so strong. Like, I saw her in New York once running and I was like, oh my God, I have to work out more. I, I just love everything about her. Uh, she's great.
1: Amazing. What kind of music do you? I mean, well, first of all, do you only do the spin classes or do you also do some of their other stuff like yoga? Oh, and stuff? so I,
0: I do the, I started on the other classes. So when the pandemic hit, we needed some sort of workout routine and they were having like three months free. So we started in the app, actually. So Jess Sims is less of a bike person. Now she does the bike hmm. boot camps, but she was more of a floor person. Uh, and I had done the bike like in person or when I go to my mom's house. But yeah, now I think I probably spend like, 50-50% of time. We have a gym in my building, but it's not great. So like the bike just makes it easy to just hop on.
1: Yeah. I have one that I I don't use anywhere near enough. But when you say that you feel really powerful when you do yoga, I can totally relate to that. First of all, from like the time that I did yoga. I mean, I hardly ever do yoga now, but um, but I got into it for a while and had just an amazing, amazing, amazing instructor that I worked with every single day for a month on one-on-one. And he like he was i don't know he was like a magician he could just see exactly what you needed to do and i felt amazing at the end of that month but i didn't keep it up um but i really like christy dreckel i think is how you pronounce her last name yeah. i don't know if you've taken any of her classes but um i haven't she talks a lot about um not a lot about but she doesn't have a frame that you associate with like a you know I don't know, a fitness instructor. Like she's a, she's a competitive by, uh, cyclist and she's like, you know, she's not super, super thin. And, um, and she gets, she like talks about how you should feel really powerful. And she's like, you know, how much space can you take up? Stop, stop thinking about how little space you can take up. Like, I want you to think about how much space you can take up. And I don't know, I like that. Plus I like her, Like she does um, uh, um rides to like the Smiths. And Morrissey, uh, like all this new wave angsty stuff that I grew up listening to. So I'm a little bit older than you, but it's like, reminds me of my like teenage angst days. So yeah, anyway. Last question. What are you really fucking good at?
0: Doing, planning, planning, event planning. I, I think in another life, I would have been a, a wedding planner and I don't even want a wedding, but like, I love, I love, the I love coming up with ideas for events. I love like, Yeah, I'm super, super, super good at that. Like, I for my thirtieth birthday, I got thirty of my friends to fly to Portugal and planned like a four day extravaganza, Uh, and that's probably as close to a wedding as I'll get. But it was amazing. Yeah, planning events.
1: Well, you're. In a good line of work, a secondary line of work, if you weren't going to be a wedding planner, I think working in spirits and drinks is uh, a <laughs> close second. If people want to learn more about you, about Avec, about how they can drink some Avec, where should they go?
0: Uh, so we're at AVEC Drinks, A-V-E-C, drinks.com. Um, uh, if you email cheers at AvecDrinks.com, it'll come to me. And I'm D, just the letter D, Charlemagne, on basically every platform, including Peloton, if anyone wants to ride together. I'm always down
1: for motivation. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help us reach incredible women to introduce you to on the show. While you're at it, check out the show notes for more info on our guests and to find out how to reach us on all the socials. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you here again next week.
0: Like anybody, I would like to live